Praise the Lord. I am Rajat and you are listening to Biblical Demand Podcast where we discuss and answer difficult questions raised against the Bible, God and the Christian faith. In the Gospel according to Apostle John chapter 8 verse 32, Jesus said, "And you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free." Amen. So let's get started. Welcome to Biblical Demand and today our guest is Dr. Gary Habermas. It's a joy to have you Dr. Gary. Thank you, Patrick. I'm glad to be with you. Glad to have this program. Glad you're interested in doing these things. I think I agree with you. The apologetics is very, very important, and we need to uh, disseminate some of these ideas. Well, thank you so much, sir. And uh, so, te- as we begin, I want to know your story. That how did you come to know Jesus Christ, and especially what pursued you do to follow this topic called resurrection? Well. <clears throat> It's a long story, but briefly, uh, I went through a very profound period of doubt, and uh, it was a pretty in-depth search uh, for uh, two things: um, is there any supernatural activity anywhere in the world, or was somebody like David Hume right, and there's no there's no supernatural? So that was one. Is there a supernatural reality? My other big question was, which religion gives the best reasons to believe? If if there is a supernatural reality, what ought we to be doing, and what ought we to be studying? So those two areas occupied my time, and I studied almost every area you can think of, almost every religion. I visited religious places like Buddhist temples and. and the the uh mormon sites here in america and but also buddhist elsewhere and and actually even after i did my phd after finishing my phd so i wasn't some young kid after finishing my phd my my doubts continued and that's when i had the time that i've talked about before some thinking i was getting very very close to becoming a buddhist and uh what rescued me from all that was my study of the um uh resurrection and i realized that if jesus was raised from the dead that's just not an isolated event because i'd already studied all these world religions and there's nothing like the resurrection in any of the world religions and and so if christ was raised from the dead that says something about who he is if if god were to raise him why him and nobody else have to have something to do with his teachings so i started in depth with his teachings and what people said were central teachings and so on so that's how i got there it was the it was the um interest in the supernatural and world religions and the resurrection through all of that and that's kind of what took me out the other side well that's wonderful to hear that uh your quest for supernatural led you to the in search of god and you have studied other religions as well as you mentioned the buddhism and the mormonism but christianity gave the right. exact evidences and the right evidences for the belief that there is a supernatural and we call him god and jesus is that god so many atheists claim that jesus is a myth and he was not a historical figure and so i want to know and i want to ask you what does history tell us about the existence of jesus i mean you can you take us through the non biblical evidences since we have the bible as an evidence what other non biblical evidences we have well i i wrote a book years ago 
called The Historical Jesus. And in that book, I have an investigation of what did we learn from the New Testament? What did we learn from archaeology? What did we learn from Christian sources outside the New Testament? And what did we learn from secular sources outside the New Testament? And I put a list together of things we could learn from each of those avenues, New Testament, outside the New Testament, archaeology, and secular sources. And on the secular sources alone, by the way, I came up with a list of 50 to 60 different morsels of information on the life of Jesus and the very earliest church, about 50 or 60 reports from nothing but non-Christian sources, counting only non-Christian sources. Um, if you put in the other sources, the other ones that are relic credited, I don't mean just given a verse and accepting the comment. If you take ones that are well attested from the New Testament, plus these other sources, archaeology and secular and so on, I think I came up with a list of about 130 items. That, that list of 50 to 60 increased to 130. So we can learn an awful lot about Jesus. And if I could cite um, probably the best-known uh, biblical critic in North America, maybe in North America and Europe, uh, is Bart Ehrman, uh, professor of New Testament. He's an atheist. Bart Ehrman says, to his knowledge, of the tens of thousands, uh, or maybe he says 10,000, I'm not sure the number, but of the thousands and thousands of teachers of relevant areas, New Testament, classics, ancient history, some philosophers during that period, world religious experts, he says to his knowledge of all those thousands of professors teaching in schools around the world that he knows, um, there's not a single one in an accredited college seminary or university, secular or religious, and whatever kind of religion, once you say religious, he doesn't know of a single one who questions Jesus' existence. It's taken for granted. And those, now he does talk about a few critical scholars who doubt or deny Jesus' resurrection who are well trained, but he says they don't have university positions. They're not teaching. So if you only go for people who are uh, teaching in, in accredited schools, everybody agrees to the historicity of Jesus because this, these facts, the 50 I mentioned and many other sources. For, for most critical scholars, the two best sources outside the New Testament are Tacitus and Josephus. But I would add many others. There's Suetonius, there's um, Pliny, there's uh, Mara Bar Serapian, which is very early. I just read a source note. They might be able to trace him to the first century uh, AD. And um, uh, the satirist Lucian, um, a couple Roman emperors wrote about early Christianity. We have their letters. So if you put all those together, we know quite a bit about Jesus. And Josephus is very helpful. He talks about James, the brother of the Lord, uh, and that implies an earlier mention of Jesus, which is also in Antiquities by Josephus. But if this is James, the brother of Jesus, that hooks us up with some New Testament claims about James, but it's secular 
references, even questions today about whether James's ossuary has been found and what that would say. On the outside of this ossuary, it says, um, you, you read from right to left in, in this language, and, and it says, uh, James, son of Joseph, brother of Jesus. It, it, and there's all kinds of dis disputes about whether that's biblical or not. But it is archaeology. That's not New Testament. Anyway, putting all these together, Barnum says nobody that he knows of questions or denies the existence of Jesus uh, in, a, in a university accredited position. Well, that's, that's really nice to hear that there are a thousand plus professors those are teaching in this profession and those are scholars and non-Christian scholars, Jewish scholars, Roman scholars, Greek scholars. Everybody has written that Jesus has existed and we have really uh, archaeological evidences of the, of the existence of Jesus. So that's wonderful to hear. And Correct. correct. So there are thousand, I mean, you said 50 to 60 uh, uh, 50 to 60 uh, people, more than maybe more than 50 to 60 historical people, those who actually wrote about Jesus or 130. Not 50 or, yeah, not 50 or 60 people. Um, there's about 18 secular sources. 80. But they, together they write about 50 to 60 events and teachings Correct. and things like that. Yeah. Okay. But there's, the number of scholars were more like about a dozen, a dozen and a half. About 18. Okay. By the way, all yeah. those, again, are the non-Christian number. They don't count the New Testament. They don't count Christians outside the New Testament. They only count archaeology and non-Christian writers. Great. That's wonderful to hear that. And uh, just moving on to this uh, particular question, and the, your subject is on the resurrection. And as Christians, we believe that Jesus, uh, you know, risen from the dead, and he's seen by many, as Bible claims, 500 people. So, so tell us why is resurrection is so important and so crucial in Christian faith? Well, if we think of concentric circles, um, a middle circle and increasing circles going around it, with theology, with Christian theology, getting less and less important as you move out, oftentimes the most disputed areas among believers not only mean we're fighting, but I mean, you might laugh over a cup of coffee and debate whether, where, where are you on sovereignty, free will? Where are you on eschatology and last things? Where are you on the time of creation? And we often dialogue about things that are further out in the circle, but toward the center, at the very center are the fundamental doctrines which all, virtually all Christians hold. I've got a Greek, I've got a, a, actually a, a Russian Orthodox buddy that we've been uh, uh, emailing with for about oh, five years. He's got a PhD in philosophy and he's, he's pretty high up in the, in the Russian Orthodox Church. And we've remarked many times about how the center is the same for both Russian Orthodox, Greek Orthodox, and for uh, Protestant. We, and I could add, I, I'm a, my, my master's degree in theology is from a Catholic school. So I could say, across the board, there are fundamentals that Christians hold. That it, And the closer you get to the center, you get to salvation. And we talk about the deity of Christ, his atoning death, his resurrection. Those are at the very center. 
and what should people do to come into relationship with Jesus. That's right there in the center. The reason the resurrection is so important is that once you get down to that central circle, without the resurrection, the rest of it falls apart. It's like one of those children's games where you put an object together and you put a piece through the middle of it and it holds the, the wooden apple together or whatever it is you're working on. When you take that core out, the rest of the apple, this wooden apple, it falls apart. And when you take the resurrection up, Paul says, most specifically, 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 20, 12 through 19, actually, he says, if Christ has not been raised, and then he tells us what Christianity would be like. Twice, he says, uses a different Greek word, but twice he says, your faith would be vain. I tell people, how many times can you count in the New Testament where someone says, if this happens, your faith is vain. We're not used to saying your faith could be vain. Um, but Paul said, if Christ had not been raised, they did, your faith is vain. Your loved ones who died in Christ, they've died in vain. Our preaching is false. Our witnessing is false. Jesus never rose. He's a false prophet. So the resurrection is the core that holds that central section together. And like I said, there's nothing like it in the world religions, nothing comparable. Yeah, great. So resurrection is since you it's a core of Christianity. So as you so have you seen a resurrection in any other religion as in your knowledge? No, I wrote an article years ago published by a Cambridge University Press journal, uh, the Journal of Religious Studies. And I it was and it was called Resurrection Claims in Non-Christian Religions. And what I, what I said was, if you take the founders of the major world religions, now, in your country, I guess Hinduism would be more prominent. I, there are so many Hindu leaders, I didn't know who to pick. But I guess if you pick Krishna as being one of the leaders, or Buddha, or Zoroaster, or a Moses, or a David, or a Muhammad, or a Jesus— those are, you know, major religious figures. And when you get a world religions book, their symbols are going to be on the cover, you know, of all these religions. And what I did in that article was, I said, there are some resurrection claims in some really small groups, a couple of Hindu ones, by the way, but a couple of real small ones. But of the major founders of the major world religions, not a single one of them is even said to be raised from the dead that I could find even by their Orthodox followers. So Orthodox, Orthodox uh, Buddhists don't say Buddha was raised from the dead. Orthodox Muslims don't say Muhammad was raised from the dead. Orthodox Jews don't say Muhammad was, I mean, um, Moses was raised from the dead. Oh, Jesus is the only one raised from the dead. Well, then that caused me to say, if he's the only one that's raised and there's a God and he did this, what in the world was he trying to show us by raising one person from the dead? And then I think you have to start looking at that person's teachings because there's something clearly different. So anyway, the conclusion of my article, Resurrection Claims in Non-Christian Religions, is that even if somebody had a view like that, it's not enough to say it happened. If you want it to be evidence for beliefs, you have to have reasons it happened. So number one, we don't find that belief in other religions. Secondly, of the major founders, and secondly, even if you did, that's a mile away from proving it happened. So with Christianity, you've got both the belief of Jesus Christ that he was raised, 
and the evidence to back it up. So it's a twofold argument there. Only one backed up by great, great data. Great. So correct that I mean the, we we don't see and we don't read any in any other religion that the anyone has been resurrected the names you just said uh, the great religious leaders but uh, Christianity is the only one which backs up with the evidence that Jesus existed he resurrected and he will as Paul say as John says in the book of Revelation he will come again well then at, so at, yeah at yeah. every at every stage that you just mentioned. Christianity is evidence. Christianity, just to kind of be objective, just to just to look at it, no religion, no other religion claims data of this magnitude. Nobody else claims to have volume. Just one small example. Um, when I was in, in school years ago, I was taught not to call the Gospels biographies. They're not biographies. They're special stories of a special man. All right. Since that time, 1990, uh, a man named Richard Burridge at University of London wrote his doctoral dissertation. He's a classical scholar. He wrote his dissertation comparing the Gospels to Greco-Roman bios, Greco-Roman biography. And he made the, a really detailed argument arguing that the Gospels are a version, a species, of Greco-Roman biography. Well, that raises the genre of the Gospels immediately into the genre of Greco-Roman bias. Now, Greco-Roman bias, Greco-Roman writers can make mistakes. They can make errors. It's not perfect because it's Greco-Roman bias. That's not some magical word. And that doesn't prove that the New Testament is without error or perfect or anything else. But all I'm saying is it raised the four Gospels up to a different genre, and we just don't see. And then with all the manuscript backups, I just heard recently hundreds of manuscript portions uh, uh, before 300 A.D. If the end of the New Testament is 100 A.D., before three, and those next 200 years, there are hundreds of manuscript portions, and we have most of the New Testament in the papyri alone, the earliest, that kind of data is just unparalleled anywhere else. Correct, correct. The data is so strong that you cannot actually deny the resurrection and the evidences of Jesus' existence. Right? That would seem so, yes. Yeah. So uh, I want to move on to this uh, thing called the life after death. As C.S. Lewis said that if we find ourselves with the desire that nothing in this world can satisfy us, the most probable expression is that we were made for the another world. So their skeptics, those who don't believe the life after death. So how do you respond to that, those who believe like that? Well, I think there's a lot of ways to go after it. The way you're doing, the way you were doing it right there, uh, C.S. Lewis, is what he calls a joy argument, the argument from joy. We all have this inexpressible desire for something, and the desire takes us to another world and forever. And we express this in our, Lewis said, we expressed it in our fairy tales and stories like, like um, the Wizard of Oz or Pilgrim's Progress. And I'm sure in all cultures, there are stories like that of people searching. Uh, even, even Lewis himself wrote Pilgrim's Regress and uh, did a story himself. Uh, that, that's the joy argument. 
you can use other arguments for an afterlife. We've been talking about one. If Jesus had been raised from the dead, the New Testament, there's a lot of theology that's said to be based on the resurrection. But the theological belief that's tied to the resurrection, more than any other belief in the New Testament, almost 20 times we are told that believers will be raised like Jesus was raised. So the belief of the resurrection leads to afterlife, eternal life for believers. And then lastly, so that's that's two, the joy argument of Luke. By the way, in a in a survey of a CS one of the C.S. Lewis societies in America, uh, when asked what is the most influential idea in C.S. Lewis, they said it was the argument from joy. That was the most read the, uh, argument. So you got joy, you've got resurrection. There's other ones, but I would say near death experiences are by far outside the, of a New Testament topic a general religious topic that doesn't prove any religion to be true, but it just shows there's an afterlife. Near-death experiences today are amazing. To give just a stat or two, uh, I just happen to have a book sitting right here. I finished writing a long article on Indies, a chapter for a book, and a new book has come out a few years ago uh, by uh, a medical doctor, and all 13 chapters in the book are chapters from a medical journal, a, a secular medical journal, and the book is published by University Press, so it's a secular press, and they estimate that in North America alone, 9 to 20 million people claim to have had near-death experiences, 9 to 20 million. Now, we could say any number, we could say, you could say anything you want, you could say half of them are hallucinations, half of them were out of their mind, you know, 10% of them, they were having dreams. But when you, when you have up to 20 million people who say they've been in another world, um, you know, Middle Earth or Narnia or Oz, call it what you want to, but they claim to have been in another world, what we look for is evidence. Anybody can claim anything. And I just finished writing my second large treatment of evidence NDEs for NDEs. And I mentioned 300 cases now of extraordinary evidence where people have no measurable, as far as we know, no measurable brain or heart activity at the same time. Brain and heart are shut down. And there are dozens of cases of uh, data that are reported from the real world. Person claims they're up above their body and they saw things down the hallway, a mile away, many miles away sometimes, and they report events that can be checked out. But as far as we know, according to the machines, their brain and their heart weren't working. And now you wonder, what is that? Well, that's consciousness after death. And it, it ties all the world religions together in this way. Near-death experiences don't say that a particular religion is true. So as I often say it, a Buddhist can stand shoulder to shoulder with the Hindu, with the Jew, with the Muslim, with the Christian, <clears throat> you go, well, then what good are NDEs? What good they are is to show that some kind of religion is true and non-religion is false. So a naturalism, a philosophical naturalism that says there's no supernatural is false. We, that's what we get from NDEs. Non-religion is false. Religion is true. Then you have to say, which religion is true? And now we're back to our earlier discussion where you say who's got the evidence. But the Indies alone, for your evidence, for your question, 
they don't argue that there's eternal life, but they argue that there's life after death. And some of the arguments last for years afterwards, years after death. That would take some explaining, but the evidence is incredible. Mm. Wow, that's really wonderful that, uh, I mean, you have written this article also, and there are 300 cases you have mentioned that people have gone through NDE, non, uh, near-death experiences. And, right. Uh, right. So whether you are you follow any religion, there are near-death experiences also, um, whether you call it hallucination, but but people experience such things. And and there is that is the evidence that there is a life after death. Right. Uh, right. So moving on this right. to the... To this last question, which I, yes. I was just going to say, one of my favorite cases is by an Indian uh, PhD student of mine. Oh, his, name is, his name is um, Rajesh. We all call him Raj. And um, brilliant PhD guy. He's got a four-year degree from Dallas. So he had, he had uh, 27 hours of Greek and Hebrew at Dallas. And now he's doing a PhD for us. And when he was growing up, oh, he's also got an Indian, uh, he's got an MA from an Indian university in philosophy, but he was up in a tree when he was about 15 years old. And he was about, I think he was about 15 feet off the ground and he fell out of the tree and landed on his head. And his mother came running out of the house and grabbing him and saying, don't die, Raj, don't die, don't die, don't die, don't die. And he's up in the tree, right? His, his consciousness was still up in the tree. He was looking down on his body and he kept shouting down to his mom, mom, stop crying. I hate it when you cry. I'm okay. And his mom never looked up in the tree and said, Raj, don't play tricks on me. Uh, come on down here. If you're up. She didn't know he was up there. She couldn't hear him. He was in another world, another dimension. That's kind of what I mean by NDs. This is not evidenced. His ND was not evidenced. But he was somewhere where nobody else in this world could reach him. Nobody could hear him. But he's hollering down to his mother. He survived. And he's kind of a joker. And in our PhD class, he's losing a lot of hair on top of his head. He bent his head down, and he showed us the scar down the middle of his head where he hit the ground, and he had to be, he had to be sewn up. But what's so incredible about that, besides the case that, that it was Indian, um, what's so odd about that is he was somewhere else where they couldn't hear him. So right away, what Indies show, the evidential ones, is there's another dimension, another world. And if it happens, now not in Raj's case, but if it happens when you don't have any brain or heart activity, it gets really evidential. But my only point was just on the base level, it's somewhere else. It's another world. Raj was no longer in the same world his mother was he thought he was he thought he was up in the tree but nobody could see that so it's just that's just an interesting illustration of what these things show yeah indeed it's a fascinating uh, fascinating uh, scene that happened with your uh, student raj and uh, yes so this, this was so wonderful to and definitely uh, nds is the another dimension where we don't know where we are but we actually experience that so moving on to this right. Do to this last question, which I usually ask every guest, that what advice would you give to young Christians, those who are seeking, and when they have doubts? So how do you, uh, how do they, uh, how can they differentiate between the information and this internet age, where other sounds and other philosophy sounds compelling? How okay? So you're asking how can they pursue a similar study for themselves? 
yeah i mean see internet age where other uh, other philosophies other world views are also there and they are, they sound also compelling right. but as a right. young christian you know how to differentiate right. between the right and wrong knowledge yeah i i would say okay now i want after it P- people sometimes i'll say people say to me oh you're really a great guy you did all this in the religions just to help other people and i said uh no to be honest with you I did all this to help me. I had a lot of doubts. I was very personal. All right. If a person wants to help other people, I would, I think both ways, I didn't know I was going about it the right way, but I think it wouldn't hurt somebody. First of all, first step, get very well grounded in Christianity, that center circle. You don't have to know whether you're a Calvinist or an Arminian or an in-between ground. You don't have to decide where you are in eschatology. You don't have to make all these decisions about creation, about why were the Israelites commanded to wipe out the Canaanites in the Middle East. Um, You don't have to solve those problems. They can be solved later. Start with the center of the deity, death, resurrection of Jesus. Move out to a few other key things, such as, is the New Testament reliable? How can you use it to argue? And then when you're well-grounded, that's step one. And I think there's no substitute for studying on your own. No, what happens if you're a sharp person and you can read and assimilate and take notes? You start reading on that center circle and you move out. And once you're well-grounded, then I would say that's the time, second step, to look at other religions, other beliefs, so we can objectively talk about what other, instead of just saying, you're wrong, and you're wrong, and you're wrong, and you, you way over there in that country, you're wrong, and you're all crazy. Only in America do we know what we're doing. That's ridiculous. You have to take time, study other religions, know why yours is grounded. Now, if this involves going to graduate school, if this involves getting a doctor's degree, if this involves writing books and becoming a professor, that's well, that's fine. But I would say the third step, first one, grounded in Christianity. Secondly, what do other people believe? Now, if you're not going to do the world religious thing, that's okay. I think after step one, you could go right to step two for those people and say, what does resurrection mean for ministry? If you're going to go into the pastorate, let's say, I'd say you still want to get well-grounded in the center and now start asking questions like, once I have the evidences down, what do the evidences show? So I might talk about the great, the great disciplines, or I might talk about a prayer life or might talk about Christian meditation as opposed to other kinds of meditation um, to pastoral subjects. But the more philosophical, religious one, you would do that in-between step of studying what other people are saying and consulting people who come before you who've already made this trek and have done some very important studies in these areas. So it depends on whether you want to go right into the world religions or philosophy or whether you want to go into ministry. But either way, those first and third steps, get down the center and ask what it means for application to everyday life to deal in these, you know, we have enough anxieties in everyday life, every country in the world, we have enough anxieties. We need to be paying attention to the issues in our own world. Well, that's a really a good advice. And I think that's important advice to get, uh, you know, get deeper, get, have a right knowledge about the Bible and read Bible more and more and, make your roots in the Bible, then if you feel like you read the other religions and uh, it doesn't, uh, I mean, it's not necessary to read, but whatever you have read, apply on your daily basis. 
So thank you, Dr. Gary, once again for joining me. And it was really a good conversation with you. Well, Roger, it was excellent. I appreciate your coming. I'm going to tell you, I've done a lot of interviews, hundreds of interviews, and, and um, very few interviewers are as organized and have as good an outline and as good a process as you want to go through. I think you took us through that. If, if I were trying to take somebody through a process, I would do it the exact same way. How did you get started? What's the center? What do you do? What do we do? That was excellent. I think you did a great job. Thank you so much, sir. Thank you.